Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Senior Fellow in Public Diplomacy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, one of the topics I have followed over the past many years is uh, Russia's attempts at influencing democracies and policies throughout Europe and in the United States as well. Um, I have been blown away by the way a lot of people have discovered this problem since the last election people who would previously not have been very interested in the subject. Um, but it is of great importance, and now that it's here, let's talk about not just how the Russians are seeking to uh, influence the political landscape, but also how they're trying to boost the American left in order to attack the American right. That is something you may not have heard that much about in the mainstream media. Um, Russia's efforts to influence the American presidential election has received massive political and media attention. Uh, equally important, but must, much less publicized, is Russia's interference through support of left-wing causes and groups opposing President Trump. Uh, that Russia is supposing, I'm sorry, supporting American left-wing groups um, and have a hand in sponsoring others does not come as a surprise. Those of you who can remember the Cold War will remember that that is exactly what the Soviet Union also did, underpinning, for instance, the extremely destabilizing and vitriotic, vitriotic uh, campaign against the anti-ballistic missile uh, deployments in Europe. And of course, the same thing also went for the American uh, peace movement also sponsored by the Soviet Union. So uh, there is a continuity of strategy, uh, but the tactics have, to have changed. Today's influence operations targeted at the US right uh, include phony <coughs> Facebook groups, Twitter accounts, trolls, and other uh, internet phenomena. Uh, Russia's influence operations also include support for political and environmental groups. And disinformation spread through news outlets in the United States as well as Europe. <clears throat> as serious as Russia's targeting of the Trump administration is, however, it also has profound and wider implications for Americans' faith in their democratic institutions. Today, the Russians are playing both political sides against each other to great effect. The refusal of Democrats to accept the result of the last presidential election has been a huge boon magnifying the damage done to Americans' faith 
in a democratic institutions. Russian interference should be a concern for all Americans on both sides of the political spectrum. And Russia's sponsorship of left-wing causes should be fully exposed. In his wildest dreams, Vladimir Putin could not have hoped for a more successful outcome than the explosive political divisions in the United States caused by the last election. Today we have an amazing panel with us. Um, we're going to have uh, start with Brad Caddy, um, who is Senior Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Security Studies Group, an organization that um, delves into disinformation campaigns um, from various sources, the Middle East, Russia, and others, um, based in Arlington. Uh, Brad spent years as an advisor to the US military, helping to design influence operations um, in Afghanistan, and many places. <laughs> uh, he holds a doctorate in uh, philosophy, um, in philosophy from the University of Georgia. Uh, next, we will have Boris Zuberman. He is the Deputy Director for Congressional Relations at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. His previous work was with the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. He was born in Russia and speaks fluent Russians, Russian. He holds an MA in Global Security Studies from Johns Hopkins University. Um, following Boris, we'll have Stephen Blank a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. He spent 25 years teaching at the US Army War College, as well as other notable institutions, specializing in Russia and Russian strategy. He holds a doctorate in Russian history from the University of Chicago. And our final speaker today will be our very own, Michael Gonzalez, who is a senior fellow uh, with the Catherine and Shelby Column Davis Institute of the Heritage Foundation. Before joining Heritage, Mike spent 20 years as a journalist, mostly for the Wall Street Journal and many of those years in Europe, but also in Asia. He also spent time at the State Department as a speechwriter, and he writes extensively on the subject of identity politics. Um, he has a new book. I said, you're just out, Mike, your book? Four years ago. Okay, well. <laughs> Relatively. <laughs> a race for the future. How conservatives can break the liberal monopoly on Hispanic Americans. <laughs> Mike holds a bachelor's degree in communications from Boston's Emerson College and an MBA from Columbia Business School. So without further ado, um, please join me in welcoming our panel. And Brad, over to you. After a certain number of academic conferences, I'm more comfortable standing at the lectern. <laughs> so I'm going to speak today mostly about the recent history of American counterpropaganda, because that's going to give you the tool set you need to deal with the problems that the rest of the panel are going to be focused on. Um, as Hella mentioned, the Cold War era counterpropaganda is reasonably well known to folks here. 
um, it was led by the U.S. Information Agency, which was a formal government bureaucracy that existed throughout the Cold War. But at the end of the Cold War, the Clinton administration decided to dissolve it as part of what they called the peace dividend. And the idea of the peace dividend was that we would just not have to fight the Cold War anymore so we could save some money. We could stand down some of the things we'd been doing all along. And this was one of the things they thought we could do without. We wouldn't need to be contesting Russian-Soviet propaganda everywhere anymore because it wouldn't be a Soviet Union anymore. So the U.S. Information Agency had run things like Voice of America, who I believe is here today, perhaps. There he is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they had done this under the authority of the Broadcast Board of Governors, which was a quasi-independent organization in order to give it credibility. So it wasn't just a another state-run propaganda outfit. It was, you know, independent journalists overseeing the production of things that were nevertheless done in the interest of counter-propaganda, among other things. Um, U.S. Information Agency was fairly successful um, when it was dissolved. A couple of components were kept. One of them is the Broadcast Board of Governors and its attendant organization. And the other is the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. Uh, the Broadcast Board of Governors went to the State Department and the Foreign Broadcast Information Service went to the CIA, where it still exists under the name of the Open Source Center. One of the better things that CIA does, if you ask me. So what went away was the centralized leadership and the ability to organize counter-propaganda operations across the government. And that seemed okay for quite a while. But on 9-11, Americans woke up to um, the shocking realization that people all over the world were celebrating these attacks on America, and they began to wonder why. Those of you who are old enough will remember that there was a lot of discussion about why do they hate us. That was a question that was unironically being taken seriously. And the answer that the government came to was that there were a lot of people all around the world who were preaching stories about America that were quite hateful and, um, you know, these needed to be countered in some way. But without the U.S. Information Agency, how would you do that? Well, the problem is that there are a lot of messaging authorities within the U.S. government. Uh, the State Department does direct government-to-government -government diplomacy. It also has public diplomacy functions, which is to say diplomats talking directly to the people. Um, you know, the, the military has a whole lot of different messaging operations, not just public affairs. They have what they call information operations, psychological operations. These tend to be pointed at conflicts, and they can't be targeted by law towards the American people. Um, in addition to this, they have electronic warfare operations where they can forcibly broadcast and overcome jamming to, in order to get messages into, into hostile areas. Um, areas where the government is hostile, but the population is thought not to be. We do a lot of this with North Korea in various ways. Um, the Central Intelligence Agency has political warfare missions where they are able to actively promulgate information that's designed to influence political outcomes. Homeland Security talks to the American people in certain ways about threats that we face. The Justice Department does. Uh, the health department does, because sometimes we face biological warfare threats. We need to inform people about that. All of these various pieces exist in many different places, and there's not a coordinating authority where there wasn't on 9-11 to try to put all of these things together. And we were thinking about things like, what if, what if there's a biological attack like the 9-11 attack? What, how, how do we 
coordinate all of this in a way that will allow us to respond and also to go out to the world, find the messages that are getting people to celebrate things like 9-11 and counter them so that people think better of our country. It's a very similar problem that we face today with the Russian propaganda situation. We need to know what the Russians are saying, wherever they're saying it. And by the way, this goes also for China, for Iran, for Qatar, and for a number of other places that are engaged in anti-American information operations. Um, we need to be able to find all of this, we understand it, and then we need to think carefully about how would we counter it. And having thought about that, we then need to be able to tap all of those different messaging authorities, which exist in different government bureaucracies, under different leadership, and very importantly, they have different legal authorities. There are things that, for example, military public affairs, are, they're not allowed to say. And as I already mentioned, there are things that uh, military information operations, they are not legally allowed to target American populations. If you need to communicate to Americans, that's off the table. But if you need to communicate the message in that way to a foreign population, it needs to be on the table. And you may need to communicate the message to both populations in different ways. So you need a coordinating authority. After 9-11, the absence of one became a serious issue. And to answer that, the military very rapidly stood up what was called the Deputy Directorate of Information Operations, DDIO, at the Pentagon. Um, this was, you know, at the time it was stood up, it had no personnel, it had no chairs, it had no place to put chairs. It was something that was being done on an emergency basis. And so a lot of it was done initially by federal contractors, more than it was done by military personnel, until they could find and bring on board the people that they needed to do it. Um, and they assembled, as they began to put it together, they assembled a group called the Interagency Counter-Propaganda Panel, which was run by DDIO in coordination with the State Department and the CIA. And I worked for this organization, which is why I'm talking to you about this subject today. Um, so the Interagency Counter-Propaganda Panel tapped the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, now the Open Source Center, as a way of looking at all of this collection that CIA was doing about what are, what are people saying all around the world? Radio broadcasts, what are they saying in print? Where are these stories coming from? Uh, and then we have provided a level of analysis uh, of you know, what are the threats, what are the opportunities, how can you use the various different messaging authorities that American government agencies have? And then the ICPP, the Interagency Counter-Propaganda Panel, pushed that out to the various agencies to be acted upon. This was a stopgap measure. It was something we put together on an emergency basis, and it worked for a little while, while the Defense Science Board conducted a, a full study involving industry experts, uh, government experts, veterans of the Information Agency, and others. And they put out a report in 2004 that made some recommendations. This report is still available online if anyone wants to read it, um, and I do recommend it. Uh, I also have brought, if anyone wants one, I have a copy of Chapter 9 of our grand strategy, uh, which runs through all of this history and makes some additional recommendations. So if anyone's interested in that, come see me, and I'll either give you one of these copies or I'll send you a PDF of it. Um, so the, what the Defense Science Board recommended, a lot of it was really, really strong, wise stuff about the importance of establishing credibility, that credibility matters more than anything else in conducting these operations, and therefore that you need to be transparent, you need to be honest, you need to do things that will build your credibility in the community you want to talk to. 
They also made one particularly unwise suggestion, which was acted upon and derailed most of this effort, which is why we don't have it to rely upon right now. And that was that the DDIO at the Pentagon was simply too underpowered to lead this effort. So, they said, we need to move it to a place where there's a, at least a four-star general or admiral who can take ownership of it and advocate for it. They're the only ones who will have the push within the military to move this. And so they recommended a combatant commander. Well, there are only two combatant commanders that have global responsibilities, the SOCOM and STRATCOM. That's the Special Operations Command and the Strategic Command. Special Operations would have made a certain amount of sense because they've had the psychological warfare mission since the 1940s. Well, SOCOM for as long as SOCOM has existed, but the Special Operations community since all the way back to World War II. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, there was some concern that because psychological warfare is frightening and it might undermine our credibility if people thought that we were <laughs> intentionally starting from the perspective of engaging in psychological warfare, they decided instead to locate it at the Strategic Command, which, as you all know, is at the Crystal Palace out west under the mountain. It's not here in D.C. So, as it turns out, um, that was a very distant place. Those folks don't engage in the same day-to-day -day relationships with people here in Washington. They don't, you know, get to drop by the State Department as often as they might. It's all right. <laughs> no problem. Russian, that's right. It's Russian interference. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a long way away is, is the basic point there. They don't have the same relationships. And ultimately, the other thing about Stratcom is that the people who do that work are very technically minded. They've spent their careers working on things like nuclear weapons, ballistic sub missile submarines. Um, communication was not really what they'd spent their career doing, and they weren't really sure quite how to think about it or how to take that mission and integrate it into what they did. So they did their best with it. They did an honorable job as well as they could, but it's not too surprising that it kind of fell by the wayside. And today, uh, we're back in the same position, that people are saying, well, what do we do about these propaganda operations that we're suddenly alarmed about again? Where's the coordinating authority? Well, since STRATCOM didn't work out, last year in the NDAA, Congress relocated this operation to the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. Now, the Global Engagement Center may or may not be the natural place for this either. The State Department, by law, has to engage in truthful operations. Not, they, they don't necessarily have people who've been trained in thinking about psychological warfare or political influence operations. You might want, ideally, an organization maybe at the NSC. But by law, this is where they put it. So this is what we need to work with right now. We need to support the GEC and what they're doing. And the GEC is under the public affairs section, and it is tasked with coordinating all of these various operations. We need to, therefore, help them to establish the understanding of how to do this and to make sure that they have access to the professionals that they may not have generated internally um, so that they can engage in recommendations on the full range of counter-propaganda operations that are possible. Now, with that said, I think um, I, we take questions now or later at the well, end? I think we'll do, take them later. Okay, but very good. Then, but then you need to be found out. All right, very good.
So that's the tool set. And if anyone has any questions later, I will be around. Thank you. Uh, and the important work they're doing there, and they they have had funds now uh, that they have uh, received, uh, but have yet to allocate to grantees. Um, and so, one thing I would urge for them to do is, uh, especially as we move into the fall, into the elections uh, here and in Europe, uh, that they start moving uh, quicker with uh, giving these grants out uh, to those that have applied to them. Um, for for these projects to counter Russian disinformation, whether it's uh, here or in uh, Europe, uh, which some of the grantees are looking to do. Um, so I'm going to talk mainly about Russian influence operations uh, on the right, uh, but really as a whole and some of the ways that the U.S. is responding. Uh, so Russian influence operations, disinformation, active measures, they're, they're not new. Uh, they've been doing this for decades. What we're seeing today is really an outgrowth of the type of operations we've seen uh, from Russia and the Soviet Union for decades. Um, the difference is really the digital tools they're using now uh, and the ways that Americans now consume information uh, online, through Facebook, through Twitter, um, through, through more traditional means as well, uh, like cable news. Uh, but the Russians are now much more effective at using these tools uh, these new tools for them, really, um, and getting their information really into the bloodstream of American society. And I think that's what we've already saw uh, in 2016 and what we see again today. Um, if you've looked at uh, the ads that have been released uh, that were run on Facebook and other social media uh, accounts, and it you know runs the gamut, and it is really aimed at sowing uh, division uh, amongst Americans, uh, left, right, inter-right, inter-left, uh, amongst themselves um, on issues, you know, some of the, the issues that got probably run the most was on race issues, uh, crime, immigration, um, all kind of touchstone, touchy uh, political topics. Uh, and, you know, the Russians don't have, you know, they're not card-carrying members of the GOP or the DNC. Uh, they, it's about us against them. Uh, and so when we get into this left-right debate, uh, it really helps them succeed in their aims, uh, in, in my view. Uh, and they are doing things uh, effectively uh, to message uh, the left, message the right. Um, and you see, I think, how actually you pointed out some of their campaigns also on uh, anti, uh, anti-fracking uh, campaigns here in the United States and Europe as well. The Russians have been, uh, been seen to be behind some of those uh, similarly. So there's not... You know, they don't have a political leaning. Uh, their leaning is how can we create chaos, create outrage in the political system, uh, and drive division. Uh, and I think we, we see that continue to be played out um, and expect to see it continue into the 2018 and 2020 elections. Um, and they're, they're quite effective. And I think one of, the, kind of the things that, one of the things that really needs to be fully absorbed by both Democrats and Republicans, independents, whoever else, uh, is that the Russians understand our political system and our kind of society much better than I think we anticipated um, previously. It's not in Soviet times where it was uh, harder to get a, a read on what's going on in the street, but you know there's been reports that they sent out uh, some of their operatives to, to purple states to just kind of conduct recon, to get a lay of the political land. 
uh, and they were able to operationalize what they learned and, 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 and really figure this out. And so uh, while some of the images and, um, and the ads that they were using were fairly crude, uh, they understood what they were doing and then to really understand um, you know, exactly how they're, how they're really operationalizing this, uh, this information. And so I think the response uh, and what you're seeing uh, in, in Congress is a bipartisan response. You've got a number of bills out there now. Uh, some of the things that I think could be most effective, um, you know, the Trump administration got derided uh, somewhat for how they uh, released the, the oligarch list, uh, which was mandated by CATSA, uh, that, was, you know, that they cribbed uh, the Forbes list, but I actually saw that uh, as an effective way of doing this, is creating a wide list uh, and snaring as many folks as possible uh, on this list, creating these folks that basically are now pariahs. Um, and so they should double down on that. The April 6th sanctions against some of these oligarchs uh, had the kind of largest economic impact uh, on the Russian economy that we've seen uh, recently. Uh, so the next round should, again, continue to kind of double down on that um, strategy of highlighting uh, who these kind of, who the financiers around uh, the Kremlin are um, and when, where appropriate, sanction them. And the other item that I think is floating around there and has gotten kind of a lot of worry uh, in the Russian economy, and I think uh, rightfully so, is targeting uh, Russia's ability, uh, or uh, sovereign debt, basically, ability of uh, U.S. persons, in this case, to invest in Russian sovereign debt. Uh, and the kind of language that's floating on, around right now is it would be targeting new Russian sovereign debt. So if you're a financial institution and currently hold Russian sovereign debt, while if this action takes place and may be devalued, uh, you're, you would not be in trouble for currently holding Russian sovereign debt. Uh, but why this is important, uh, post-2014, uh, when the post-Crimea sanctions uh, hit uh, and the economy started going down, oil prices started going down, they really relied on these, uh, these funds uh, and, and the ability of Westerners to buy up uh, Russian debt uh, to basically bail out key pillars of their economy, uh, to bail out the cronies uh, of the Putin regime uh, when the economy was sinking. Um, and so if you take that, if you hurt, I mean, again, it's not fully taking it away, uh, but if you start to nibble basically and take off uh, their ability to do that in the future, uh, because what are sanctions about? I mean, it's not just about punishment, but it's your, your hope is that you're changing uh, Putin's calculus and kind of his decision-making uh, matrix. Uh, and if it is going to be harder for him in an economic downturn uh, or another round of sanctions to raise funds to bail out um, the, the Rosnefs of the world, uh, when, the, when the time comes, maybe he'll think twice about pushing further in Ukraine um, or continuing to evade, help uh, the Kim regime in North Korea evade sanctions. Administration has uh, continued to sanction Russian entities that are involved uh, in that uh, recently. Uh, so how do you change Putin's calculus? And dealing with some of these macro issues uh, beyond the designations is, is important. Uh, while it's great to see more designations and certainly supportive of that, how do you change that calculus? How do you change the game for Putin? Uh, because what we know is you know, Putin is going to continue to aggressively prod uh, and press against the national security interests of the United States. Uh, it's going to continue to undermine the global order uh, and work with like-minded states uh, whenever and whenever they see an opening. And they do that abroad there, and whenever they see an opening here, whenever there's an issue uh, that they can exploit um, in the public sphere, 
we've seen them dive headfirst in doing it. Um, and so expect more of that. Um, and I think the more we get into this red, uh, you know, kind of red, blue, left, right, however you want to phrase it, debate, uh, the more they're able to kind of cultivate that and keep, keep, keep churning um, this kind of distrust into, in each other, into the political system uh, as a whole. And I think seeing a unified response from Congress will be important, uh, but also from just kind of the wider swath of uh, leadership in the United States. Thank you, Boris. Stephen? Thank you, Hallie, and thank you for inviting me. In, by 2005, the Russian government had concluded that it's at war with the United States. Sergei Ivanov, then the defense minister, told the uh, military academy that we are at war with the West. Not a shooting war, but a non-kinetic war, like the kind that's been described here, or what George Kennan used to call political warfare. That warfare is continuing and has not stopped. And what's more, Russia is following a distinct strategy. Now, when I say that Mr. Putin has a strategy, I don't mean to say that he is a Bismarck or Metternich or so forth. That strategy is, like any other human document, flawed, and also it's able to take advantage, as he often does, of tactical opportunities. But the fact is that if you go back and look at what they've been doing for the last 12, 15 years, there is a discernible strategy, and it involves really the whole of the state, military as well as everything else, including information warfare, which they regard perhaps as the most important element of contemporary warfare in the world. And they define it differently than we do. They see it as not only the kinds of things we've been talking about here, but also uh, cyber strikes against uh, targets, say cyber strikes against the Democratic Party uh, headquarters and the Clinton campaign. And uh, the same thing is going on all over Europe and in the Middle East. Rand just released a study about Russian information operations in, in Turkey. There was another one that came out from uh, Ilya Zaslavsky about Israel. So it's not just us. They're in Latin America. They're in Europe. They're in the Middle East. And uh, I suspect they're in Africa also, but nobody's looked at Africa lately. So this is an element of a broader strategy of what uh, the, the Israeli scholar Dmitry Adamski has called multidimensional coercion, or multi-domain coercion. We're here today to talk about the active measures and the information warfare. But you need to keep in mind that this is part of an ensemble, part of an orchestra, if you like. And Putin is the conductor. And the orchestra is one that is playing on all the different sectors, brass, winds, strings, information warfare, energy, finance, military operations, etc. This is an old story in Russia, as my colleagues have pointed out. The Tsarist government in 1905 had a two-million-ruble budget for influence operations in the French press because France was their ally. They were raising a lot of money on the French stock exchange, and they wanted to make sure that everybody thought Russia was a great investment, although it turned out it wasn't such a great investment. The Soviets took this to an even higher degree. If you read the two books by Mitrokhin and Christopher Andrew, you see just how extensive this was on a global level, and it has been, as uh, my colleagues have said, revived in order to take advantage of the new opportunities and technologies that are out there. All those activities in the Soviet period, going back to the 1920s, were coordinated by what came to be known as the KGB, NKVD, and so on, earlier periods. These are the guys who taught Putin his business, as well as Putin. They ran those ops. They taught Putin and his generation how to do it. And then that legacy has been brought back or never left. 
So as I said, these measures, these active measures in information warfare are ubiquitous. They're all over. Moreover, we see stuff like this happening in Estonia in 2007, Georgia 2008, and there's a lot of evidence that we see the kinds of networks that have been built in the United States and in Europe beginning not in 2014 with the invasion of Crimea, but in 2012, when Putin comes back to be president and after the riots in Moscow, and when he realizes that, uh, or he decides that the United States is irredeemably hostile, and we're, and we're even more hostile, going to have to be hostile to Washington as well. The tactics of these operations are very clear. As my colleagues have said, you exploit the ethnic, racial, political, and other cleavages in every country not just the United States. You offer financial incentives to potential supporters in these countries. We're now learning about Brexit. Aaron Banks was offered all kinds of lucrative contracts with Russia in return for his operations to support Brexit. I think we're going to find the same thing here. We know that the Trump Corporation in, in New York, and it's a matter of public record, was doing a lot of business with Russian uh, money launderers and so forth. It's all over the newspapers. It's it's not a political statement to say this. It goes back years. It's another form of creating financial inducements for people who want to cooperate with Russia. You create business connections, financial and political linkages that are transnational, and dependencies. Because some of these financial institutions come to depend on Russian money. For example, I remember I was in Abu Dhabi with at a conference when the Russians invaded Ukraine. And I turned to John Roberts, the British energy expert, we talked about what is the British reaction going to be. And sure enough, they came out with some weasel words about uh, this. And he said, sure, I mean, of course. I mean, the city of London would go broke if they took their money out. And, uh, you know, you can meet John le Carré. He talks about it in fictional terms, but we've seen this uh, in London, and you can see it if you go there that uh, the Russian money is very strongly entrenched in London. It's, they're, coming, they're making attacks against it now, but that's a, uh, quite late in the game. Furthermore, the Russians exploit political rivalries. They subsidize political leaders, parties, and media. Not just here. President of the Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, Miloš Zeman, owes his election to money from Luke Oil. And that's probably not just private money, or if it's private money, it was directed by Putin to a certain area because they, the owner of Luke Oil, knew, you know, who's buttering his bread back in Moscow. They are willing to support any and all forces in the West who are opposed to European integration, which they regard as a, the great geopolitical threat, particularly in its democratic form, and therefore they are opposed to democracy. We've seen this in the European venue, support for Brexit, support for the uh, uh, intervention in the Dutch referendum and the Catalonian question in Spain in the referendum there. Intervention in the French, German, Italian elections. Subsidizing the Austrian uh, coalition members now and the Italian coalition members. Serbia, Greece, attempted coups in Montenegro and Macedonia, which, as we've seen, and the list is endless. And, of course, uh, we could talk about the, the new reports about Turkey and Israel. I can tell you also they're in Latin America. Four years ago, Southcom asked me, Somebody, I was at a meeting with Southcom, and one of the colonels said, what can, we, what can we do about the fact that the Russians have the first two numbers on, uh, RT has the first two numbers in Argentinian television? And I said to them, you know, sir, there's nothing you can do, because by law, you're prohibited, as Brad has said. There are authorities or, uh, that prevent the military from acting here, even though this, these are warlike actions. So they're all over the place. 
not just in the United States. But as we have now seen, and there's a tremendous volume of reporting here, the great majority of Russian attacks and probes in the United States are directed at not the left wing, but the right wing, the Republican Party, supporters of the Republican Party, lobbies that are clearly affiliated with the Republican Party, NRA, primary example. When you read the indictment against Maria Butina, and you're going to see the trial reports and the other reports that come out about this, you see she was trying to infiltrate the NRA. She was involved with groups that are close to the Republican Party, like the Center for the Study of the National Interest. And she was in, at other f- functions as well, and she's only one person. I can tell you, my conservative friends, when they ask me to write articles, they complain to me about people like Patrick Buchanan, who are thinking that Putin is this great supporter of Christian values. He isn't, believe me. And Russia is not a particularly Christian country. And what's more, uh, the spectacle of, uh, how should I say, it, uh, repentant KGB operatives becoming fervent Christians is, is more than amusing. Uh, furthermore, the Orthodox Church is itself a KGB front, FSB front, excuse me, and has been for years, as anybody who studies this knows. Moreover, if you look at the att- figures on church attendance in Russia, they're not very impressive. I think it was 3, and four, three to 4 percent was the last one I saw. So, you know, all this stuff about Russia being a Christian religious country, it, it's, you know, it's nice propaganda, but the reality is rather different. However, here, We've seen all these probes mainly at the right. There were to the left, like Jill Stein. If you remember the photograph of Flynn with Putin at dinner, the woman sitting there is Jill Stein. Now, I mean, there are Democrats who will tell you that, you know, Stein may have cost them a lot of votes in those three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I don't remember how many she got, but it may have had a factor. Now, beyond that, we know about Flynn. We know about Manafort. We know about the NRA. We know about the Center for the National Interest. We know they, they... had, they tried to hack into the Republican National Committee and various senators. They have attacked the Democratic National Committee in the Clinton campaign, as we all know. And they also have attacked at least 20 to 30 states' election commissions. That's as of 2016. What they're doing now is not a matter of public record, but it's I'm clear they are doing it because the intelligence community has come out and said that it's going to be that this is going on already. And they, as part of their cyber activities, they have attacked the American electric grid. This is all a matter of public record. I'm not making any of this up. It's nonpartisan. So the fact is that what's really at stake here is the integrity of the democratic process in the United States and abroad, plain and simple. What are the objectives? Fractured domestic cohesion in all of these places, not just here, to elect a pro-Moscow president. They hated Hillary Clinton. Whatever you may think of Clinton, that's clearly they hated her. And they felt Trump would be much more pro-Russia. They're clearly disappointed by what has happened. But that's the motive behind all this in 2016 and why they offered to collude with the Trump administration, as we now know. They want to corrupt and discredit not only the American democracy, but the whole idea of democratic and capital L liberal governance. They want to force the United States to accept Russia as a global equal in a multipolar world, which would end the U.S. ability, A, to thwart Russia's imperial dreams in the former Soviet space, and it's our ability to affect what goes on in the Russian domestic system, because they regard that as the greatest geopolitical threat, not NATO. And therefore, that would mean an end to democracy promotion. All the act- organizations and activities in this country that are geared, in one way or another, to democracy promotion abroad would fall apart, because they'd be discredited and probably underfunded and so on. So at the end of the day, we have a foreign policy that sort of takes its... Uh, Guiding principle from Virgil, uh, of all places, in the Aeneid, where he has 
I believe in Aeneas say, and I can quote you in the Latin, si flectere superos nequia acheranta movebo. If I cannot move heaven, I will raise hell. Thank you. <laughs> Obviously, for this crowd, there's no need for translation. No. But we're, but we're on TV. No, so. I, I must say that the three of you have been incredibly uh, disciplined. Each of you has gone exactly 10 minutes. So I'm going to try to stick by that. One of the great things about speaking at Heritage Always is the, the, the level of uh, uh, people in the audience. I want to recognize especially Jamie Kirchick, who's really one of the great writers on this issue, bringing to light human rights uh, abuses uh, in Russia, especially a, against the, the gay community. And so I'm glad, I'm glad that you're all here. Uh, I'm going to obviously sound the same themes that my predecessors have. Uh, luckily, I have some different examples. Um, yes, uh, Putin uh, and the Kremlin are equal opportunity offenders. I really do welcome uh, the newfound uh, vehemence on the, on the left and the media that, uh, about Russia. I wish we had had him around in the 70s and 80s. Um, but uh, uh, it is true that uh, Ru what Russia and the Kremlin want to do right now is just uh, exploit their divisions. And they don't really care about whether they do it on the left or the right. Uh, and we have an, an open system. So no, uh, Russia knows exactly what it's doing. And it knows that it's acting at a, at a, at a, a, a time of very heightened racial and ethnic anxiety, and uh, how, how is it doing this? Well, identity politics has left uh, Russia with very gaping holes in our society and divisions that it can try to get in there and, and try to open even further. Uh, and so we see this clearly with the pages that uh, Facebook uh, blocked just last month when Russia was last caught with his hands in the cookie jar. Um, and I do apologize. I have a, I'm under the weather, so I'm going to pause and have some water. Um, the three most important, they blocked 32 pages. The three most important pages that are blocked all had to do with identity politics. One was black elevation, obviously meant to appeal to, to African Americans. The other one was resistors, which was meant uh, for feminists, get it, resistors. Um, and the third one was the worst, was Aslan Warriors, which was meant to play on the fantasy by some, some Chicano activists that the, the southwestern United States is a cradle of Aztec civilization and therefore these states have to separate from the rest of the country. Uh, now, uh, obviously, Russia was trying to just create mayhem there, but not just virtual mayhem, real-life uh, mayhem. Uh, the Patriot Sisters, for example, organized a protest against the, the racist uh, white supremacist rally that took place here in Washington in mid-August. Most of you remember there were like 18 white supremacists. They were outnumbered vastly by journalists alone, let alone the counter-protesters. Um, but what Russia did was Resistors itself uh, set up a, a, page, a, a, a Facebook event to set up a counter-protest. Obviously, what it wanted to do was have a re a, a, to replicate what happened in Charlottesville last year where we had actual bloodshed when a young woman was killed by a white supremacist. Uh, uh, so now, real, real groups you know, co-hosted this event that was created by Resisters, uh, by Russia, actually, because Resisters was just a front. Um, uh, according to TechCrunch, uh, quote, the event that Facebook deleted had been taken over by a handful of real D.C. area activist groups. They included Smash Racism D.C., Black Lives Matter D.C., Black, Black Lives Matter Charlottesville, and other local groups. So this left many of them uh, really disgruntled and, and really feeling badly let down by Facebook. One of the organizers was quoted uh, uh, by one of, one of the tech magazines as saying, this is really outrageous for us. It, it makes us look like we're Russian pawns. 
So is any of this new? As many of my colleagues have said, no, no. I, I don't go back as far as the czars, although that is true. Um, but this, this, this is following the, the Soviet playbook. Uh, the KGB, for example, is very, very, very well known that it tried to uh, it posed itself as, as members of the KKK at one point. Uh, it also fabricated evidence that linked uh, the CIA to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It wasn't just uh, Ted Cruz's father. It was just, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it passed the material off to unwitting uh, conspiracy theorists in the United States. What the Soviets did, it, it forged a letter, a letter from Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald to a very a little-known CIA operative uh, known uh, by the name of E. Howard Hunt, uh, so, and the letter said, uh, uh, asking for before any steps are taken by me or anyone else, let me know what to do. Um, uh, so the forgery took place in the 1970s when Howard Hunt was much better known because of Watergate, his involvement in Watergate. Um, the, um, I think much more worryingly, the KGB also tried to uh, discredit the Reverend Martin Luther King by planting articles portraying him as an Uncle Tom uh, who was being secretly paid off by the government so, L, so LBJ could control Martin Luther King. Uh, now, the New York Times, when it wrote about this in the 1990s, said it's these attempts were silly, but that is really forgetting the context in which this took place. You know, this was a time when Malcolm X was calling Dr. King and Uncle Tom also, and other separatists, just because Dr. King sought peace and assimilation rather than separatism. Uh, There's an interesting aside here. A lot of these cases I've just cited uh, uh, were... were uh, in the book by Bentrokhin, which is, I think, you've referenced. Um, uh, and and uh, the interesting aside here is that uh, Mitrokhin himself tried to turn himself into the, to the CIA in the early 90s and was turned away. Uh, it, it, uh, the CIA's Soviet and East Asian European Division, sorry, East European Division, had at the time come to the conclusion, uh, this is like 91, I think it was, that the KGB was no longer a threat and Russia was no longer a threat. So the CIA began to turn away uh, Soviet defectors. Mitrokhin, uh, being spurned by us, turned to the Brits. So, um, you know, folks have been underestimating the Soviet, uh, the, the Russia threat uh, for, for decades. Um, even the New York Times, when it wrote about this in the 90s, said that the CIA had acted naively uh, after the Soviet Union by underestimating this. Uh, today... Uh, everyone has gotten the religion because uh, you know they, they think that the, they, the the left now wants to use this to attack a legitimately uh, elected president. Uh, and in the age of Trump, um, uh, you know, it's it's the, the point of reference is no longer the New York Times, so it's now Facebook. So how is Facebook dealing with this? Well, it's trying. It's 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 hard. It is. I mean, Facebook gets many things wrong, but it's it's uh, it's also, it's doing. I think trying to do a fairly good job uh, so it doesn't get criticized by Congress. Um, and and, and the, the, the bad actors are getting much better at hiding their connection with Russia, which makes the job of Facebook and Google and everyone else um, and, and Twitter much harder. Um, Facebook itself said last month when it announced it had blocked pages that, quote, it's clear that whoever sets up these accounts went to much greater lengths to obscure the true identities uh, than the Russian-based Internet Research Agency, IRA, has in the past. So Facebook says it has to just uh, lay in wait uh, for, for bad uh, actors to, to, to slip. In this case, there was a slip. It lasted only seven minutes. So that was enough. Uh, one of the accounts set up by, uh, by the IRA 
that Facebook had disabled in 2007 had shared a Facebook event with these pages, especially the resistors page. And the resistors itself made the mistake of having the IRA account, uh, an, IRA, an IRA account as one of its administrators for only seven minutes. And that was enough for Facebook to realize what was going on and, 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 uh, and, and go in and block them. Now, they're trying, you know, Facebook, like its uh, big tech uh, monopoly sisters, you know, Google and Twitter, is trying to thread a very difficult needle here. Uh, it's obviously the social media has brought a lot of, you know, added a lot to the pursuit of happiness. But it's also being used, I think, uh, it's being exploited by bad actors. And what I wanted to, to close with is that it's not just really just Russia. When I talk to my friends in the government, it's, they're very aware about Russia and they're very serious about Russia. And there's a high level of awareness uh, at all levels of the administration about what Russia is trying to do. But, they, but China really is also a bad actor. And it really needs to be discussed in this context. Because, and it's not just social media either. Um, China is also very sophisticated about trying to – I know this event is about Russia, but I have to bring in China. Uh, it's also it, it very sophisticated about trying to influence the Ameri- American public and thus American uh, policy. Uh, and and it, does in, in, it does so in ways that sometimes we don't realize. Now, we've all heard about the Confucius Institutes. Uh, this, I guess, is about 100 of them now. Um, and they take money, and, and what they do is they don't allow – they try to, 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 uh, to stifle discussion of the three Ts, Taiwan, Tiananmen Square, and, uh, and Tibet. Uh, but less well-known is what's happening with Hollywood – where China is telling studios, if you want to get any any piece of our box office, uh, uh, you know, incredibly ginormous amount, it's going to be bigger than the U.S. this year, if not by next year, uh, you're really going to have to submit your scripts to the Chinese censors. And and Hollywood studios are doing this, and they are, and sometimes they bring the Chinese censors on on, uh, on the set. Now the beautiful people are not really hiding this. Uh, this is a, a, a beautiful quote by uh, James Cameron, uh, I think about it, two years ago, where he said, quote, as an artist, I'm always against censorship, but this is an important market for me, so I'm going to do what's necessary to continue having this be an important market, market for my films, and I'm going to play by the rules that are internal to this market, because you have to. So, you know, this is the same James Cameron who is incredibly, you know, out there defending truth, here in the U.S., he's Canadian, by the way. Um, uh, but despite his in- incredible candor, uh, most Americans don't know about this. You know, and I, what I've called for in the past is say, well, maybe in, 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 the, in the titles to the movies, uh, you know, just say this movie has been submitted to Chinese censors. And the last thing I, I want to add is China's going out there and buying radio stations. It's doing that not, not just here. In, in, in Canada and Australia and New Zealand as well, is trying to pass, pass it off uh, as, as an American radio station. It's, getting this, it's finding a loophole here to get around, uh, you know, the regulations that we have. Um, so just to sum it up, it's not uh, – it's, 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 it's Russia. Russia is really serious. It's a real adversary. I, I welcome finally the left has come around to seeing uh, that it is an adversary that has to be taken seriously. But it's also not it's not it's not just social media, and it's not just Russia either. It's also China. Thank you. All right. As we can see, we got our work cut out for us here as we're thinking about <coughs> strategy to counter um, these uh, daunting challenges. Uh, 
we're going to go uh, to about 1.30 and uh, like to invite the audience to ask some questions of the panelists. If you do, uh, please identify yourself by name and affiliation and, uh, and keep, it to, uh, keep it short and keep it to questions rather than comments. So um, any questions out there? Yeah, one right here in the second row. Hi, Carl Golovin, a retired special agent, U.S. Customs. I was a 9-11 responder, domain reference, and idea lives on.net. Um, the conversation went way beyond Russia influence operations to touch on 9-11, and I'm amazed JFK and E. Howard Hunt came up in this context. <laughs> so I do have to lay a foundation for a question. E. Howard Hunt confessed before he died in 2007 to involvement along with several other named CIA personnel in the plot to assassinate JFK. He claimed to have only been a bench warmer, but there is testimony in federal court that he was dispensing cash in Dallas. So um, Mark Lane, the trial uh, documented in the book Plausible Denial. So I don't know. I, I'll go to a question, 9-11. Um, as a responder, I helped go through the rubble of World Trade Center 7, the third tower that collapsed that day which in the West we have a complete blockout in the media that a 47-story building collapsed at 520 that afternoon, housed the largest domestic CIA office outside of Virginia. So I guess we have influence operations. We, we limit what the public knows. My question will be false flag terrorism. To what extent do both, well, Russian, U.S., NATO interests apply false flag terrorism to influence people in uh, – well, their submissiveness to governing authority. And I would go back to mentioning JFK. Operation Northwoods, presented to Kennedy by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called for false flag terrorism on U.S. interests to influence public opinion to support invading uh, Cuba, including substituting drone aircraft in flight uh, for commercial aircraft, bringing them down and using that as a pretext for war. So false flag terrorism, uh, is it a reality? That would be the question. Um, I, I'm not going – the last time I used the phone, it erupted in noise. So I'm not going to Google the thing about Howard Hunt just now. Uh, but I uh, – you know, I, I'm just going to leave that aside. I, I don't know about it. If anybody knows about Howard Hunt being involved in the Kennedy assassination, uh, please uh, do speak up. Uh, Look, when I'm involved in a war, I'm an American, and I care about American interests. Uh, and I don't, I don't ask how successful are we being at taking war to the other side. I'm, I'm asking how successful is the other side being at inflicting, you know, getting in the way of our success. So if we do do these things, as you say, I, I don't, you know, it's not something that I'm concerned. I'm concerned about defending American society and Americans in this country. And that's really the only answer I can give you. I don't know if anybody else wants to uh, touch on that. Well, I can address the terrorism question in Russia. I mean, Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism, plain and simple. They are the uh, they have sponsored terrorist activity in Ukraine, Kharkov and Odessa. They have sponsored Kurdish terrorism in Turkey. That's Prime Minister, as President Erdogan saying that, not just me. Uh, they are the principal armorers of Hezbollah through Iran. And uh, they probably have links to other terrorist groups. They're, they're working with the Taliban. They're, they're certainly sharing intelligence with the Taliban. They may be sending arms as well. So uh, terrorism is another instrument of the Russian strategy and where it suits their interest. Because they're also victims of terrorism, to be 
uh, to be absolutely objective. So where it suits their interest, uh, they will employ terrorism as an instrument of war, as an instrument of Russian foreign policy. Now, I, I, you were talking about false flag terrorism, if I heard you correctly. Now, I don't know that they're recruiting people to, under false flags for terrorist purposes. A false flag is basically I come to you and say I'm working for X, I'm working for Y, but you're sympathetic to X, so I know I, I have a leverage or I can get leverage on you to give me information or support. I don't know that that's happening. I have no evidence of that. But I do know they're a state sponsor of terrorism, and very few people want to admit it. So we have a question over here. Good afternoon. Very simple question. Uh, my Could name you is identify Irma yourself first, please? Yes, I did. My name uh, is Irma Bridgeford. I'm a retired director of International Protocol. Um, Mr. Blake, Blank, yes. Blank, you mentioned that Russia is also influencing very much in Latin America. You mentioned Argentina. I'd like to know if you know of uh, what other countries this is happening. Okay, Venezuela for sure. Well, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, they tried this in Ecuador. I think it's failed in Ecuador, Nicaragua, and of course Cuba. Central America. No, I meant in South America. All right, uh, Venezuela. They, certainly, there's a large Russian presence, although it may have diminished now because of the crisis there, and because there's not much more they can do there. And they certainly have tried it in Ecuador. They tried to uh, uh, ten years ago, for example. They had uh, this major program. Not only the one that Victor Boot was caught running on, uh, trying mm -hmm. to run weapons through Venezuela and, Colum mm -hmm. and Colombia, but they were trying to get intelligence cooperation and, and, and information networks uh, with Venezuela and Ecuador, who at the time had a rather leftist government against Colombia, our main ally in that part of the world. Now, in terms of Argentina, this is in 2014, they mm -hmm. had the first two networks uh, on Argentine te television, uh, RT, I think they still have a presence in Argentina, but I, but the government is completely different, and the circumstances are now much different. Okay, thank you. So not not that much all over South America. One more question to the gentleman. I can't read his name. The Gonzalez. last one. Do you know if China has infiltrated in South America? Well, one keeps hearing China is obviously uh, yes, it's very involved in Venezuela. Uh, as I keep hearing, I'm not a Latin Americanist, uh, but. Um, uh, China is very involved all over the world, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised that it is doing the same things in South America that it is doing in North America and Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. We have a question in, also in the second row here. Thank you. Uh, Howard LaFranchi with the Christian Science Monitor. Um, Mike, I'd like to ask you, um, so you said at the end there that um, that you welcome that, the, that some in the American left seem to be getting this now that, uh, um, you know, Russia's influence and its uh, attempts at influencing here. Um, but that seemed to be, seems to be happening at a time when some um, on the right and some self-identified Republicans in, in, in polls uh, seem to be um, um, going the other way. I might, I, I might say we, you know, polls where um, Putin is, uh, you know, growing popularity. Recently there was a poll um, showing that it's still very, still small, but double-digit um, percentage of Republicans said that they would welcome uh, Russian influence in elections if it was 
on the right side, on the right direction. So wondering um, why, why do you think that's happening and what, what can be done or what should be done to, um, to kind of nip that in the bud? Look, you know, being somewhat wry, also in welcoming the left uh, to, 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 to the, the threat that Russia represents on the Putin. But obviously, I, and I, I don't know why people say to tell pollsters the things they say. When I answer a pollster, my wife's like, why are you doing that? Put the phone down. You, you know, just <laughs> why, are you, why are you talking to a pollster? Uh, you know, um, I guess I'll, I, I, I'm just, Perhaps I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm guessing that some people think, you know, Trump got elected. Get over it. You know, stop using this as an excuse to 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 not accept his presidency. Uh, you know, I was in the Bush administration briefly, and and you know, people are saying now, oh my God, I wish we could have Bush. The awful things were said about Bush, and the people who are now pressing John McCain. I looked at tweets. Turn off your phone. Um, you know, people, you know, I've seen some tweets by some people, I don't want to name him here, who are now praising John McCain, who in 2008 were saying he's he's spreading hate. You know, so I think that people, have, especially conservatives, have had it up to here with with hypocrisy. So I don't know if that is if this is a function of that, but I'm, I'm really speculating here, which I shouldn't do. Anybody want to handle that? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of, uh, first of all, I think it's the influence of President Trump, who has a very devoted following and, and uh, knows how to appeal to people's emotions. And uh, there, so th there's a constituency out there that believes, uh, like Mike has talked about. Second, I think, let's be fra frank, successful information operations. You have a whole school of Republican conservatives, and they're writing in public and we all, you know, about how Putin is a strong defender of Christian values, well, you know. That's, that's a Russian operation got, that's been successful. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. This guy's going around murdering people. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what religion uh, sanctions that. Uh, but uh, uh, th th there is that. And there's also a major problem. I hear I, I speak as an old college professor. We don't educate people about civics, to use the old term. Well, we teach civics, but we teach it differently. Now. We don't educate them. We don't. We may teach it, but we don't educate them. No, no, no. no. We, we, it's a completely different civics. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I think your point is very good. Uh, Maybe that makes us easier to undermine. Yeah, I think so. Ignorance, ignorance is always easy to undermine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Civics now is about <coughs> marching in the streets and none of the things that are, that, that are real civics. Whatever it's about. But yeah. the point is, I can tell you, I mean, having been out in the front lines, that the, the extent of ignorance. And it's all over the country. It's not just in any one particular yeah. area. Uh, it's appalling. Yeah. All right. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Um, this one in the back here. Uh, thank you. Uh, Katie Wang with NTD TV. Uh, the question is for Mike. Um, because uh, you just talk about uh, China trying to um, influence the democracy here, then how do you see the difference between Russia and China in their influence operation? And, and also, uh, for this upcoming midterm election, do you think uh, uh, China will try to also exercise influence? And do you have any example that they, uh, how will they do? to try to influence here? You know, they obviously do it very differently, right? There was just a very good uh, congressional report uh, published last week 
on how uh, China is trying to use its influence, not just through the Confucius Institutes, but by trying by you know uh, trying to use overseas communities and so forth. I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it. Uh, they 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 behave very differently, but they're both spoilers. Uh, they're, they're unlike us. They they don't really have allies. They have vassal states, and they both try to 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 disrupt open societies such as ours and 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 you know other open societies around the world. I don't know if anybody else has something to add on that. I lived in China for a couple of years, right around two thousand two thousand one, and I was very impressed with the Chinese propaganda operation. I thought it was. Um, tremendously well thought out and professional. I never once heard them say anything false, um, which is a key insight if you're doing this kind of warfare. Truth is a force multiplier. If what you're saying is verifiably true, then it's going to be more powerful. And the Chinese have um, brilliant editors. They, they tell the truth in a way that leaves out certain important facts, perspectives, contexts, and leads people to draw the conclusion they want you to draw on their own by facts that they can verify through their own research. Um, the Chinese are really good at this. So I, I think we ought, as, as a professional, I have to accord them a certain respect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I think we had another question here in the front row. So accepting the fact that um, Putin has fan clubs, both on the left and the right, um, and he will continue to do so, which is beyond my comprehension. Um, and you've laid out our attempts to do something about it. I'm not terribly optimistic that we know how to handle this, that we know how to put a dent in it. And despite all the press that's come out about Butina and um, and uh, Dimitri, uh, Dimitri Symes and others, um, I'm, I'm not sure that we're sort of breaking or making a crack or an indentation in this. And so how would you propose any of the panelists that you go about doing this? What's the future? And I don't think the GEC is necessarily the answer. Well, it sounds like you might have an answer for this, Brad. So you're right that I talked a lot about government answers. And the government... We have, a, we have a pretty ossified government. Um, what I mean by that is that the bureaucracies we set up in the mid-century to fight the Cold War, that and, and well, really to coming out of the Great Depression too, they're now quite old. And bureaucracies by nature establish more rules and more rules every year. So it becomes harder and harder to accomplish anything. This coordinating role that I was talking about is necessary. And it, you know... We have, to, we have to find a way to align all of these different authorities and all these different messaging capabilities. But you're quite right that the government probably can't do it by itself. It's going to need industry partners um, in places like Facebook, in places like Google. Uh, but it's also going to need it's going to need a civic effort by the American people. Um, as Helen and I were discussing before this panel began, the, what the Russians do is that they go and they find legitimately issue, issues, um, like the Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter thing. Both of these sides really exist. There are real tensions between them. They both have a point to a greater or lesser degree. You can take whichever side you want, but they both have an argument. And it's part of our public discussion that we, we really need to find a way to talk through these arguments rather than fighting about these arguments. And if we come to see, as a people, 
that this is tremendously important for us to reason together rather than fight with each other. That's the way to get past Russian propaganda more than anything else, to stop feeling and start thinking. I think you need to have political leadership. It hasn't been there for, for whatever reason. You haven't had institutional leadership either, as, as Brad knows. I mean, if you talk to people, say, you know, at the management level or the board of uh, in, international broadcasters, and so on, oh, we can't do that. That's propaganda. We don't do propaganda, you know. Um, uh, private corporations have been remiss. I mean, Facebook, you know, we, get, we see just how bad Facebook has been about protecting our privacy. They're not alone. Uh, we've had a lot of mismanagement. I mean, you know, I, we, those of us who are in civil service like you, you used to joke that you know, all our records are in China because of the great sca- scandal six, seven years ago when o- OMB records all went at, you know, were stolen by China. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things going on out there. So Brad's right. You need government. You need uh, private sector. You need institutionals and civic leadership. But there also has to be a vision of what it is that you're trying to accomplish, by what means, and how? We're, I don't know that we're trying to get our message across in any kind of really systematic, innovative way, other than Radio for Europe and VOA, which you know are great organizations but are handicapped, to the Russian or pro-Putin community. I would take the war home to Putin. There's no reason why the Democratic National Committee should be the only one who's hacked. No, no reason why, for example, we can't get try to find out where his bank accounts are and where his money is and go public with just how much he and his buddies have stolen from the Russian people, whose condition gets worse day by day. That kind of in, information, true information, not propaganda, true information, credibly reported, reliably sourced, is a force multiplier. That's exactly right. Yeah. I would just add a couple points yes, on that. Outside of growing kind of resiliency of the society uh, to these types of operations, there's things that we could be doing here in D.C. Fairer reform, for instance, uh, is something that needs to be done, um, which would obviously, you know, this Foreign Agent Registration Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now you have it's, – it's, it's too easy for people to be foreign influencers without having to register as such. Um, and then naming and shaming, as we've seen in, the, in, in kind of some of these cases – uh, that hopefully it'll make people think twice about engaging in uh, kind of these kind of questionable activities that maybe in the back of their mind they think, yeah, not sure who this is, what this is really about, where they're not maybe asking a few extra questions where they should ask of why this person is really reaching out to me or setting up these uh, trips with me to, to Moscow or to Beijing or wh- whatnot, what, what's really happening here. Uh, so some of these name and shame can't kind of, you know, what the press is doing is important. Uh, and highlighting some of these cases, um, both on the China front, on the Russia front, uh, but then also just changing some of our rules and regulations uh, to make it harder for uh, foreign agents to operate uh, without having to declare as such. We want to quick follow-up. What do you think about reintroducing the rules of reciprocity? Because a lot of what has gone on uh, wasn't allowed in the 60s and 70s. We had very, when you were doing diplomacy, when you were doing economic exchanges, you have rules of reciprocity. So, mm-hmm. for example, if a U.S. firm could not own property in Russia or in the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, then that 
Soviet person could not own property in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of this happened after our own banking and loan failure and, and people needed fast money, so they took it from China and they took it from Russia. But what do you think about reintroducing the rules of, of that? Why should an oligarch be owning the Brooklyn Nets and the stadium they play in when we couldn't own, you know, own a hockey team in the KHL? What do you think about that? And my preference in, in those cases would be if an oligarch is in, involved in sanctionable activities to go to, to go ahead and sanction them and seize their assets. Um, I think that's probably, in, the, in the short term an easier approach, but in the long term, I think that's probably worth a discussion how that would actually play out um, in the Russia case and China case. Uh, is the political kind of economic impact of that is that footprint too big, and can you deal with it more with a um, with a knife as opposed to a sledgehammer? Um, I think we need to see more designations, though. Thank you. My name is Russell Henry. I'm here as a private person. Um, I specifically uh, to Mr. Blank, you mentioned about the resurgent uh, Christianity among um, many of the KGB or FSB personnel. Does this have anything to do with the possible schism between the in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, which is basically centered in Ukraine, as I believe? Can you say something about that, please? Yes. The Orthodox Church throughout <coughs> Russian history has been an arm of the state. And it has also been an arm of the secret police, even going back to, in many cases, the czarism. Uh, there was no privacy of the confessional, for example. The church was obliged to inform on you know, people telling them of uh, seditious activity. As an arm of the Russian state, it is an arm of the empire. And there has been this trend, if you go through the entire Ukrainian history, and try to look at the Ukrainian history objectively without polemics on either side or on the many sides of all these issues, the Russian Orthodox Church has always tried to assert that it is the main church and that Ukraine, Ukraine's Orthodox Church is subordinate to it. And that, therefore, the Russian Orthodox Church, and by implication, therefore, the Russian state, have hegemony or leadership in Ukraine. And they're, they're the church that you should orient yourself towards. Now, they have tried to play this game with redoubled vigor under Putin, and particularly since the invasion of Ukraine, because uh, this is a major issue in terms of people's uh, cultural, national, and political identification. And so, w without getting excessively long about this, the Russians have used the church as a political weapon and have militarized religion, in a sense, or weaponized religion as an arm of Russian state policy. And this has been going on for decades, and particularly we now see it in Ukraine. But we're also seeing it, for example, with regard to Serbia. Serbia, uh, you know, they claim, well, you know, we have this uh, Orthodox Brotherhood and so forth. Uh, so when the Russians and the Serbs want to be friendly towards each other, you have all these uh, PNs to uh, Orthodox Slavic Brotherhood. And, of course, when they're not so friendly to each other, the, the, the shoe's on the other foot. I mean, just remember Tito and Stalin. Nobody was talking about Slavic Brotherhood there. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, so, it, I mean, they are attempting to use people's religious convictions as an arm of political warfare. Question 
Thanks. Uh, Will Thatcher, Heritage intern starting in September. I was wondering, I think it was Mr. Zilberman who mentioned Russian operations in the anti-fracking movement. I was just wondering if you could go into more detail about that, about how they're doing it, why they're doing it. There was, there was actually a recent uh, government report on this that I would, would um, point you to for more of the details. But why they're doing it, uh, it's, a, it's a threat, right? Energy is one of their main exports. Uh, cheaper uh, U.S. Uh, natural gas fracking is competition to them. Uh, they see there's a natural left movement uh, for environmental reasons to go against it. So they are pumping money uh, into those campaigns because at the end of the day, uh, it helps their own uh, economic interests to do so. Um, I'm William Tomlinson. I'm also a heritage intern starting in September. So given that one of Russia's main weapons is, is the use of Facebook, uh, Mr. Patty, you talked about counter-propaganda. What, balancing free speech and state interests, what could the role of the U.S. government be in persuading American citizens to not vote solely based off things that they see on Facebook and to get a diversity of information? So that's, that's a... That's part of the really important question. Um, the, the question you asked is, what can we do to educate voters? That's, that's, that's good. That's important. There are other things that the U.S. government can do with regard to Facebook um, that can help them to be a good partner for American democracy without engaging in viewpoint discrimination or other similar problematic features. There, we've had things in the past, like the Fairness Doctrine, for example, that's a law that used to apply to broadcast television. Broadcast television was regulated pretty extensively because there was a very narrow set of bandwidths on which you could broadcast because there only so many channels. So there's only so much attention. And therefore, they thought it was justified, the government of the, the era, to, um, to make sure that everybody was represented within that space, the, the, that all viewpoints were, were treated fairly. And if you had one thing you wanted to say about your side, you had to give the other side equal time, perhaps, or, or otherwise, to make some arrangements to make sure that they weren't suppressed. So one of the things that we need to do is to um, engage in voter education. That's, that's something that the federal government doesn't necessarily have a huge role in. The Department of Education can push that down just as a, with suggested standards to the states. But most of the education of American citizens is done at the state level or by private agencies. Uh, but, the, but the Department of Education can certainly work on trying to make sure that we have standards that we can suggest to them. Um, but we should also probably look at dealing with these issues because these larger places like Facebook and Twitter, they're on the Internet, which in theory is more or less unlimited. It doesn't have that broadcast limitation. But as you know from studying node theory, um, the the value of a network is an exponential of the number of nodes that it has. So when you get to a certain size, as Facebook and Twitter have, they're not quite infinitely, but certainly exponentially more valuable than any alternative that could be set up. So they have a kind of similar bandwidth lock on American attention. And it might be worth looking at something like the Fairness Doctrine just to make sure that you know propaganda efforts don't go unanswered and that viewpoint discrimination doesn't become an issue either. I want to add something here, actually. Welcome, I want to welcome you, too, to Heritage. Uh, I'm going to take a different tack on this. I, as a former newsman, I don't want to go back to the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, you know, I, I always tell people, I was uh, tweeting today to Chuck Todd, 
you know, I'm old enough to remember the bad old days of uh, when Walter Cronkite, Harry Reasoner, and John Chancellor is all we had. And they were very fine men, uh, very liberal, and they all lived in New York. And we had, we have, we have information democracy now. The new word, sorry, it's Latin, caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. It's on, it's on you. You have to be the filter. But I wouldn't leave it to Facebook or the government to, to monitor or police any of this. Uh, I would leave it. I, I want to be the one who, who and I, I think I, I have a good filter now when I read something that looks to me like Russian propaganda. You know, it, and I search a little bit and see who, who pays the bills here at this, at this uh, uh, you know, uh, information source. It is Russian propaganda. So I feel for you. I know this is a new burden on your generation that you're going to have to be the filter yourself. But it's vastly preferable what we have to what we had until about 15 years ago, I guarantee you. And by the time you finish with your internship here, I will have you believe this, I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be fired. <laughs> There's actually... Uh, I, I, want, I want to add to that. The, uh, besides what uh, Brad and Michael have said... We have to hold these corporations to account. I mean, these are giant corporations. They have enormous corporate power, as everybody knows. That, co- that power has to be held accountable, uh, not just through congressional hearings, although that's certainly one case. You need really – we need to support investigative journalism to uncover these things. I mean, the, you, you know, without investigative journalism, there's a whole series of scandals, not, not even related to this to- these topics, but that we know about, that would have gone right – that would have been covered up and heinous crimes would have gone unpunished and so on, but for those reporters. Therefore, the organizations like Facebook and Twitter um, need to be held to account in the public domain because they provide a tremendous service or product, as the case may be, but that brings a certain responsibility, which, they, which they're not going to live up to on their own, or in maybe cases can't. So we have to be there Right. Anybody else? Or have we talked talked this through enough for today? I assure you that we will not stop pursuing this topic here at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, and I uh, hope that you'll join us for future programs as we um, drill deeper into into the the activities of, of the Russian government and its propagandists. So let's wrap it up. Say thank you to the panel and thank you to all of you for coming.